Welcome to Lifelong Learning on ReachMD. I'm your host, Alicia Sutton, and we're broadcasting from the annual meeting of the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions. Today, we're talking about how to define success in quality improvement education, or QIE. We're going to hear from the perspectives of the physician who's involved in providing QIE. Where are we heading? What is it looking like? What's industry thinking about it? I'm your host, Alicia Sutton, and with me today is Dr. Joe Kim. He's president of MCM Education. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, and you are a regular guest. We've had you before. We're glad to have you back. Thank you. So can you define QIE and and what it is in general? So the QI, or Quality Improvement Education, has been something that this community of Alliance members has been discussing for quite some time. And in fact, the Alliance held a Quality Improvement Symposium in fall of 2014. And during that meeting, there was a lot of discussions around terminology definitions And then there's a working group that's been working actively to map out and define, and they just released what they call the QIE roadmap. And so that roadmap is going to actually break it all down. Um, I would say that in very brief terms, and this is my personal, these are my personal words, that uh, quality improvement occurs within a system, within like a health system or a hospital. And it often occurs where you identify a problem, like a baseline problem, you, you assess what is the size or the magnitude of this problem, and then how do we fix it? problem could be related to a process. It could be related to a clinical outcome. And it may involve education, but in many cases it involves getting teammate, t- team members together, uh, looking really at their current performance, their processes, and then implementing steps so that change, change can occur and they can remeasure and make sure that they've actually closed that gap and made improvements in whether it's in patient care, whether it's in reducing wait time, uh, whether it's in other measures that, you know, that they're really focusing on. No, oh, it's so interesting. So the roadmap, does it, does it start sort of a root cause analysis from the beginning and follow it through to the end? It's all part of it. I think that many of these organizations are trying to, when they identify a problem, they first want to ask the question, why does this problem exist? And one of the classic methods is to do the five whys, if you will. You're peeling back the layers of the onion to say, why does this problem exist? And you say it's because of such and such. And, well, why does that problem exist? And then you sort of look back and you want to identify what are all the contributing factors that may lead to this problem. So, for instance, if it's an infection rate in your intensive care unit, you may want to look to see why is the infection rate what it is. And there are probably going to be many factors, many variables, But to really be able to pin down and say, well, these we believe are problematic. These are some things that we believe we can improve on. And then to get the team to really take a deeper look and a deeper dive. Yeah. And the roadmap is now available, you said? The the beginnings of the roadmap are Mm -hmm. finally available for the Alliance community. Okay. Yeah, good to know. I imagine that this is a little bit disruptive in education when you think about building in quality improvement. It really is. I think part of it is that, um, especially in many of these hospitals and health systems, they have quality improvement or process improvement departments that often don't speak to the CME or CE departments of that same institution. I think a lot of process improvement has traditionally focused around reducing patient errors, for instance, Mm -hmm. where something happens like a near miss or there is truly an error that occurs. They do an analysis of why did this error occur, once again, a root cause analysis, and then they implement changes in whether it's in policies or procedures to make sure that that error never happens again. And so there, I think often the, the mindset is that we make policy changes, we implement these changes, and they don't necessarily always tie it in with education. I think this whole QIE roadmap has caused people who work in hospitals and health systems 
to start talking and making sure that the quality improvement departments are regularly communicating with the mm -hmm. continuing education departments because perhaps there are educational materials or lectures, grand rounds, things like that that have actually contributed to some of those process improvements that they now measure late, later on. Right. Now, it makes sense. And, you know, you're a physician, so you know what it's like to operate um, in different, uh, you know, your business to operate in different levels. There are plenty of healthcare professional members of ReachMD who don't have access to the big, large-scale systems. How can they think about doing QI on a, perhaps a smaller scale or something on a much more local level? So I would say that for many of the uh, physicians and other providers who maybe work in the outpatient setting, mm -hmm. they might be an independent practitioner or in a smaller group practice, they can often identify what the most frustrating inefficiencies are within their practice. Uh, the provider may have a, a top five list. Um, the office staff or the nursing staff may have a different list of the top five sort of frustrations, whether it's inefficiencies or waste. I think the, a good place to start is to have each of those stakeholders identify that list and then have them sit down and really look at that list together. And if there are some common themes, for instance, a good common theme might be that patients often have to wait too long in the waiting room. And if that's a common theme that causes frustrations for the providers, the office staff, the nurses, and everyone else involved, perhaps they can identify some ways of reducing that. And I think that that's where you identify some changes, uh, some problems. Mm -hmm. You identify some possible interventions that you believe might actually help fix that problem, not completely, but at least reduce it down. And then the whole philosophy of quality improvement is that you start doing small changes in incremental uh, as incremental experiments. And one of the classic frameworks of that is called the Plan, Do, Study, Act, or PDSA cycle for improvement. So you plan out what you want to change. Perhaps you want to change how you're making appointment times. Then you do it. Then you study to see, did this actually make a difference? And then if you believe that it did, you act on it by either making that change broader, or if it didn't quite have the impact that you thought it was going to be, then you sort of plan again. And so it's a cycle that repeats itself. And I think for many practitioners, they can identify things that are causing a lot of frustration in their practices, but they often don't sit down to talk about it. They really don't have those candid conversations about what can we realistically do here. And it's, the answer is not just work harder. The right. answer can be solved through a systematic process improvement methodology. Right. Not work harder, like you said. Work a little smarter sometimes. Bring in the different tools. Exactly. Yeah. If you're just joining us, this is Lifelong Learning on ReachMD. And we're talking about quality improvement and QIE, quality improvement education, with Joe Kim. Um, so, Joe, your company is an education provider. You, you do this. Um, tell us a little bit about how you've incorporated QI into your education, maybe about some of the outcomes. Sure, absolutely. So, um, MCM Education, we focus on providing continuing education. And we've, uh, in the last couple of years, been involved in several projects in oncology. Now, in oncology, a lot of these hospitals, whether they're large hospitals or even smaller hospitals in the community, often have a cancer registry, a database of information that really tracks all the cancer patients that they're treating at their own institutions. And in many cases, that's also feeding to a national cancer database. So we have designed projects where we have asked these various hospitals around the country to look at some metrics in their cancer database. Um, for instance, you know, one program that we did was in lung cancer. And we wanted to see out of their lung cancer patients that they treated, how were they doing in a certain area revolving around molecular testing. And so it involved tapping into their registry and having them actually go to their registrars and pull some baseline data. It also involved looking at the electronic health records because in most times the registry isn't complete. It's not comprehensive. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have all the information you need 
but at least it tells you where to start. Sure. And so then you go back into the electronic health records or the pathology reports. And what we have done is we've looked at baseline performance. Uh, we've actually gone in and conducted workshops and other educational interventions to help them improve in some of these processes. And then we've gone in showing them their own data, that mm. this is where you started back in, say, you know, May of 2013. And this was your testing rate, and th this, these were some of the obstacles and barriers that you face, as well as some of your inefficiencies. And then, as we provided the education and provided them with tools and examples of what are some of the things that they may want to change in their own institution from a process standpoint, we are, we're also providing education for all the various clinicians, whether they're medical oncologists or pulmonologists or radiologists. And then, approximately a year later, we've actually gone back to these organizations and asked them to once again pull data from their registry, mm -hmm. look in their electronic health records, and see how, has the, how have your patient metrics and outcomes changed. That's great. And, and what are you seeing? What so we're definitely seeing improvements, and I think there's a number of reasons why these things are improving. And one of the biggest drivers is that we're living in an era where sort of this idea of molecular medicine in oncology is really growing. So even in the community where um, these patients may not necessarily have access to clinical trials and research studies, there are still many therapies that are currently available that recently got FDA approved that can be used if the patients have certain positive mutation markers. And in the past, the clinicians weren't looking for those markers, but now they're actually looking for them, and they're looking for them in a systematic way as opposed to in a haphazard way. And we've kind of helped them make that a priority so that there's reduced wait time, so that patients don't need to get second biopsies, and also so that patients aren't just left there waiting to see what were their results, and, you know, two or three weeks may go by. Now, it sounds fascinating. It sounds like a very logical move for education uh, development to go that way, so you can pull in these different points, data points. Are there some challenges you want to mention about building QI education? Absolutely. I mean, there are certainly a number of challenges that I think many organizations can relate to. One is just getting buy-in from all the stakeholders, particularly physicians who are very, very busy, and they have competing priorities. And so to get them into a workshop or to get them all into the room and sit down together and to explain to them why this is important and why this needs to be a priority. That is always challenging, but we found that centers and hospitals that have a really strong championing physician who's got that leadership as well as influence within that organization, they're able to pull the people together and actually get that kind of buy-in and engagement. And then another big challenge is that the data that often is being collected and reported on that data quality isn't necessarily always best because even though they've got electronic health records, that doesn't necessarily mean that the information is, is entirely accurate or entirely complete. And then that information is ultimately feeding the registry. So anytime we've had questionable results in the electronic record or, or in the registries, we've then had these um, people go back and, and double check. Is this truly what was documented or perhaps you know, there's something either missing or incomplete here? Right. No, it's interesting. Kind of makes me think of asking you, you know, what are those key steps to ensure that you're developing something in the right way and getting the best product at the end? What are some key steps you would mention to people when they're thinking through QI? I think from a QI standpoint, the first is to really make sure that you're focusing on the right measure because there are so many different measures and things that you may want to change, but you have to really identify something that's going to resonate well with everyone involved, all the key stakeholders. One measure might be really important to physicians, it may not be as important to nurses. Or there might be another measure that may be really important to administrators, but not to the clinicians, and so forth. I think so, therefore, as you plan out the process to have that entire interdisciplinary team there together, to get buy-in and consensus on here are a couple of measures that we believe are interrelated, 
and are of importance to us. It's a priority for us. We want to make sure that we improve these things. In many cases, I think they found that by improving in certain areas, it has also trickled down and translated into changes and improvements in other areas. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. Are you seeing much um, out in the publishing field in terms of publishing results of QI initiatives? There have, there have been several examples, and I think we're certainly going to see more of it mm-hmm. because last fall's Quality Symposium uh, was really the first time that this community of Alliance members uh, came together, and now with the QIE roadmap uh, in place, as well as just other frameworks for publishing research and everything else being shared and disseminated with this community, um, I think that we will definitely see an increase. You know, this year at this conference, there have been some tracks very heavily focused on just research in general in CE, and I think a lot of that also interrelates and ties in with QI. Right. So the roadmap has launched. How is the plan uh, evolving in terms of dissemination over a course of time? Well, I'm not on that work group, but I believe that now that it's been disseminated to the Alliance members, mm-hmm. the, the planning uh, team, I guess, for the upcoming quality symposium. Uh, they're definitely going to be leveraging that. Um, I am in charge of a, um, a work group here that focuses on professional development and enduring materials. So it is our team's uh, plan to really look to see what are some of those educational vehicles outside of the conferences that we can leverage to educate the alliance members, those involved in CME and CE, and to make sure that they understand QI, they understand the terminology, and they also understand how they can integrate this into their regular curriculum. Excellent. Sounds like great resources. And as you had noted, they can be found online at acehp.org. And uh, any parting thoughts for us on QI? I think we're going to see more and more examples of QI, both at a really large system level. You know, we've seen a number of those already. I think there are uh, many health systems and hospitals that have, for instance, used these methodologies to reduce errors, for instance, or to reduce waste. And, and classic examples are like the Lean and Six Sigma methodologies. Mm-hmm. I also believe that we're going to see uh, a lot of this happening interdisciplinary, um, from an interdisciplinary perspective. So as an example, there was a session here at this meeting where nurses were talking about how uh, within their nursing school uh, that they were using the Lean methodology to reduce some of the waste and just some of the processes for nursing students. And, um, and I believe that we're going to see more of this also impacting those in independent practice because they ultimately want to improve efficiencies. And right now there are so many um, things that are distracting them, that are bogging them down, and I believe that if they can enhance that efficiency and use their time wiser, then ultimately they'll be more productive. Excellent. The future certainly holds promise, but it's here now as well. Thank you, Joe. We always appreciate your joining us. Thanks for having me here. Great. You've been watching Lifelong Learning on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This series is co-sponsored with the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions. For more information and a full library of medical broadcasts, please visit ReachMD.com. I'm your host, Alicia Sutton, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Joe.